It's always a privilege to get to talk on the holy days. Because they're such beautiful times of year. You can never really mine them completely for everything they have to offer. Uh, they have future things to look forward to. They have historical precedents uh, that we can focus on and dig facts out of. Uh, today, I'd like to dig a little bit in terms of historical precedent to sort of give us a, I don't know, a peg to hang our hat on, you know, in terms of uh, something to reflect on. I have to confess at the beginning, I like to give credit where it's due. A good part of the sermon I'm going to be giving today was inspired by a sermon that Mr. John Aguin gave about 17 years ago in Dallas in July 1999. In fact, I'm kind of concerned because I haven't heard the original in a while and I don't even know where my notes are anymore. I just, I'm thinking, well, I hope it didn't just take his notes and I'm just going to read them up here, you know, or something. It might even, I don't know if it's the same title. I, I like to think that I, that I wrote this, but if some of you have, a sermon that sounds just like this one from 17 years ago, feel free and listen to that one when you get home. Uh, you know, that, that might be a whole lot better than this. But at the same time, it's the holy days, there's some recurring themes, and I realize some of you weren't even born 17 years ago. Uh, some of you were born, but you were sitting on the floor playing with your Transformers or whatever, and you weren't uh, paying. Some of you right now are sitting on the floor and playing with your Transformers. Uh, and you're in your 40s. Get up. What are you doing? You know, services. Pay, pay attention. Today is the last day of unleavened bread. And it is often historically associated with the crossing through the Red Sea. Uh, some have said they could prove that this is exactly the day they crossed through the Red Sea. Uh, I find when I go through those, there's little tweaks or assumptions that sometimes, sometimes I feel uncomfortable. I'm not really sure. At the same time, what I do know about God is his timing is perfect. I know if I can ever get something really close, like it's within those few days, I just don't think, for instance, God had the Israelites at Mount Sinai for the Ten Commandments and look at it and realize, oh, if I'd have just done this the next day, it'd have been Pentecost. Why am I doing it the day before? Ah, silly me. Uh, he tends to time things pretty well. So personally, I do suspect that this is the day uh, in which the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. But we do know it was thereabouts. And it's a wonderful reflection to consider uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. I do want to take a quick poll. It was already mentioned once earlier. Uh, raise your hand if you saw, doesn't have to be the Charlton Heston movie over the last two weeks, or the last week, but you saw some Ten Commandments, Exodus-themed movie uh, this past week. Raise your hand if... Uh yeah, it's a good good number. Some of you are doing the kind of, yeah, it's me, I don't want to raise my hand too high, you know, it's embarrassing. Uh, I was really planning on seeing The Prince of Egypt, the cartoon. Uh, I, I really enjoy that one. Not just because I just like cartoons. I like Charlton Heston as well, and his big white hair at the end is very nice. But The Prince of Egypt has a few moments I really do enjoy. I think when it comes to actual parting of the Red Sea scenes, the fact that they could animate that, it's just, uh, it, it gives me goosebumps, I have to, I have to uh, admit. Plus, it's got the voice of Val Kilmer. It's all, it's all good. Uh, but I do love the parting of the Red Sea. I think it's one of the, the most fascinating things to imagine being a part of in the Bible. And if we consider what it would have been like to be on the other side of the Red Sea, if you turn to Exodus chapter 14, in Exodus in chapter 14, we have sort of the setup. Israel had left. They had left Egypt, and Egypt was a ravished nation. They had truly been freed in the sense that the grip Egypt had on them was shattered. And they were able to walk out, not only a free people, but a victorious people. 
They left with all the goods and all the wealth as if they had been a conquering army when they really didn't have to lift a finger against the nation. God took care of it. The Apostle Paul tells us that the Red Sea crossing can really be thought of as sort of a baptism, as sort of a picture. And we just talked recently during the announcements about people being baptized. I mean, we were baptized very recently. And there is that great understanding when you come up out of that water that you've been freed from the grip of the devil. That the sins you've committed are forgiven. You've been freed in a way you could never free yourself. You would never be able to free yourself. And you are completely and utterly free. But one of the things I'm always mindful of after that is once we are freed through the waters of baptism and hands have been laid on us and we're given God's Spirit, that the devil sort of has a different eye towards us. It's different now. You know, we are his potential replacements in the future. We sort of shine on his radar screen in a different way. And you'll find he comes after you. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did. Though they were freed, Pharaoh came after them. Uh, we see this discussed in Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. It says, The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered. I always want to read this with uh, Yul Brenner's voice, and I just can't, can't pull it off. It says, uh, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the eternal. And they did so. I thought Mr. Nathan covered this concept of learning who God is so beautifully in his sermon really of just a, just a few weeks ago. Now I was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. So he went to go claim Israel back to try to bring them back into, well, actually he'd been, content apparently just slaughtering all of them, but regardless, went to go uh, kind of reverse what God had done. It's a beautiful story. We're not going to read all the details. That's actually one of the things, if I go back to the Prince of Egypt movie, that irritates me about the Prince of Egypt movie is it's clearly for kids. And so you have the, the Egyptians going into the parted Red Sea. And if you watch the movie, uh, the things go poorly as they get there. Kind of like it talks about the chariot wheels not doing well, but then it has all the horses flee out of the Red Sea. So suddenly it's just an army of people. Well, we know that didn't happen. The Bible says horses died too in the Red Sea. Uh, but because it's kids. And it's a movie for children. And sadly in our world, we're rearing children that care more about a horse dying in the Red Sea than people. All those bad guys get wiped out by the Red Sea. And the kids were like, ah, oh, yeah, get them. Yeah, get the Egyptians. But if the horses were still there, I know you'd hear a child's voice. Mommy, Daddy, did the horses die too? You know, it's just a... It's sad that that's what's going on in our culture, but that's the case. So I remember I told my kids, they were little, I said, those horses died too, don't you, don't you skip that. They died as well. Stop crying, you know, it's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, I want to make sure they get a good, accurate, accurate picture. But that's exactly what happened. If you can imagine the, the United States mustering all of its forces, what is still at this point in history, the greatest army in the world, uh, and having them all just wiped out in an instant. You had Pharaoh pursuing Israel with the most powerful weapons at his command. And without them lifting a finger themselves to stop them, God wipes them out. He parts the Red Sea 
Israel passes through to the other side and then God closes the sea on them and they are utterly, absolutely destroyed. Uh, let's jump to the end of that particular chapter and see. We'll start in verse 26. It says, Then the Eternal said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Eternal overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. Uh, they just were obliterated. It says, that, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Eternal saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Eternal and believed the Eternal and his servant Moses. So where are they at this point then? The Red Sea has done its job at God's command, and they're on the other side of that. Where they had been an enslaved people, knowing nothing, not even really a whiff of freedom as God intends his people to enjoy. Now they're on the other side of a body of water they could never have passed on their own, looking behind. And as the Bible says, they see the corpses of the army that was there to kill them washing up on the shore. Horses too. Uh, just washing up behind them. Evidence they can't deny. We are truly, absolutely, completely free. Completely free. And they break out into song. There's this beautiful song here in chapter 15, the song of Moses. Uh, that's actually one of the things that irritated me about the Prince of Egypt movie is the song they sing as before they go to the Red Sea is all about if you believe, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mention God at all the whole time. I'm thinking, this might as well be Oprah Winfrey singing this song or something. It's not, you know, where's God in all this? However, there's a part where they start singing in Hebrew. And if you actually look at the translation of those words, I have invested a little more time in the Prince of Egypt than perhaps I should. If you actually look, the Hebrew words they sing actually come from the song of Moses. And if you listen, they do sing Adonai here and there, and they actually are singing. It'd be nice to hear it in English, but still, you know, at least they did that. So you read this. I'm just going to read the first part of the song of Moses in chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Eternal and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Eternal. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The eternal is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise him. My father's God. And I will exalt him. The eternal is a man of war. The eternal is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Uh, just celebrating this beautiful, amazing victory. Actually, if you jump on down, it even ha in the song they look forward to the land to which they are going, which isn't an empty land. It's already occupied by people. And a land occupied by people, you just walk into it and say, hey, actually, God's given this to us. Could you kind of skedaddle? Uh, it doesn't go well. And yet they sing about it. Uh, here in the, in the thrush of victory, they're not worried about it. Uh, verse 14, 
It says, and the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants, uh, inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O eternal, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Just triumphant in glory and their victory that God had given them. Really, actually, words that apply uh, to all of us who have been baptized. We, the people whom God has purchased. And so it's beautiful, this song of faith and how they believe in this God who up to this point only had not only the, uh, the, the miracle of the Red Sea and all the plagues, but God was actively leading them with a pillar of fire and a, a, a pillar of a cloud and smoke. And yet, turn to Numbers chapter 14. We can understand their exaltation. If you've ever been in the presence of some miracle that has caught you off guard, you've probably felt something similar. And in Numbers chapter 14, here they are, they've arrived on the doorstep of the promised land. They were just singing about how God's going to give it to them. He's going to take care of business. Numbers chapter 14. And we'll just look at verse 4. On the doorstep of the promised land in verse 4. It says, so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They were there. Everything God had promised, he did. And here they were on the edge of actually receiving that which was promised. And they're thinking of going back. And it should cause us to pause and ask how that could be. It's easy to write them off as just a bunch of simpletons or some sort of a, a spiritual know-nothings, morons, whatever you want to list them as. And yet they were people like us. You know, don't do it right now, but if you look around you, right and left and such, it were people like the people around you. And notice the people around you would then be looking at you. Uh, they were people like us. And here they came to such a conclusion. Let's go back. Now, for those of us who've been around long enough, and sadly, you don't have to be around too long before you experience it in at least a small way, if not the large way many of us have. There are people in the faith, there are people in the church of God who make a similar decision eventually. I'm going to go back. As if the curtains behind me were Egypt. We started out on a journey together going forward, going away from that. And then for whatever cause, sometimes someone decides, you know what, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back. Now, it's easy to write off something like that and say, I would never do that. I think we'll see at least one example to teach us to be wary of saying something like that. Uh, But it's interesting how it happens. I mean, for me to turn and go back to the curtains, if you'll forgive me, normally don't turn your back on an audience ever, but give me just this one. What would I have to do? I'd have to turn around and and, and actually go back. But notice, before you turn all the way around, you first have to do what? Is that too subtle? Did you see that? Or I go the other way, you go. 
uh, before you turn all the way around, you have to veer somewhat. And there's something that pulls, there's something that moves people in that direction. Where they're no longer walking forward to what was promised, but they're walking backward to Egypt. Rather than make it generic about a bunch of nameless people, I want to make this personal. I want all of us to consider today what could turn us back. In particular, what could turn you back? What could turn you back? What could start you on the path where instead of going forward to that promise, you start to veer to the right? Or you start to veer to the left? Because to think that nothing could do that is foolish. It's, it's, it's virtually mailing an invitation to the devil to say, I am yours. I'm going to be putty in your hands. The Bible warns us, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Today I want to stir all of us to consider what could turn you back. What could turn me back? And we'll look at some biblical examples. But understand, the list I go through today can't possibly be complete. Because I can't incorporate all the details of all of our individual lives. It's a worthwhile exploration and self-examination for each of us on our own. But you will find there are some very common things for many people, and we'll discuss them today. The title of the sermon today is, What Could Turn You Back? Question mark. What could turn you back? And I think if we'll all reflect on some of those who have left, a lot of more people we loved, even looked up to. I could think of some very specific cases of men whom I respected greatly, whom I saw as a role model for myself. And now I would either have to leave the collection of people called the body of Christ entirely to go spend time with them, or I'd have to go to a different fellowship, or I'd have to go someplace other than the forward I seek to go. Again, people I looked up to. For me to think that somehow they did that and I never would is foolish. It's foolish for any of us. And so today we want to consider what things could turn us back. We'll just look at a few examples. The first example I'd like to look at of something that can turn us back, if we're not careful, is fear. And you'll find a lot of intersection with the sermon uh, earlier today, Mr. Mike D. Simones. Fear can turn us back. If We're already in numbers if you haven't turned the page from where you were earlier. And why did they turn back right there on the doorstep of the very promised land? We can see that in the report from the spies. If you haven't read the story before, this is a great time of year to read it. Uh, they sent spies into the promised land to kind of scout out the land and take a look at it. And they came back saying it was everything God promised it was. Oh, there's fruit in abundance. It's just a land blessed, milk, honey, everything we could want. This is a beautiful land that God has brought us into. At least two spies said that, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them were so focused on what they feared that those things barely entered the conversation at all. In chapter 13, we could take a look at verse 27, Numbers 13, verse 27. It says, then they told him, they're reporting back to Moses and such, and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They brought back some of its beautiful, amazing fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. 
The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. It says, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we're well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw it, uh, in it are of men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Might be a little of exaggeration there, I'm not really sure, but you know, these tales do get dramatic when you really don't want to do something. They were terrified. They were terrified. Now, just for instance, you know, amongst the people they are terrified of, uh, if you saw in that list, there were the Canaanites. It just said the Canaanites in general. What do we read literally? It would have been days before for them. Eh, days, weeks, give me that. What did they read in this, what did they say in the Song of Moses? They said the Canaanites will melt before us in a sense they're not really saying anything not true when they say for instance that we are not able to go up against this people in the song of moses they recognize it wasn't them going up against the people it was god they couldn't go up against egypt but their fear had gotten hold of them you know eventually for all of us life gets very real Life gets very real. Uh, one of the things I remember Mr. Aguin expressing in Spokesman Club uh, back in Dallas, when, you know, we'd ask these questions. Spokesman Club is wonderful. I encourage anyone to be a part of it if they, if they can be. Um, and it was like, well, what would you do in this case? And you throw out these hypothetical scenarios, and all of us would stand up with great proclamations of faithfulness in terms of what we would do, and I would never do this, or I would do that. And I remember him injecting just a bit of balance, not that what we were saying was bad, but just making sure we understood that when you're actually in that scenario, it's a lot more real and can be a lot scarier. It's one thing to examine the life of another at a distance when they're going through a trial and say, I would never handle it the way he did. I would never make the choice that she did. And then you find yourself in the exact same trial and the reality of it doesn't feel like it did when you could watch uh, from the stands and in the benches. If you turn to Luke chapter 22... Fear of the inhabitants made Israel want to turn around. It's so easy to judge them. They went through two walls of water. The sea was parted. There's no law of physics that says that's a normal thing. They saw miracle after miracle. They were led to where they were by a pillar of fire. It's easy to think what is wrong with these people. What was defective about the Israelites? Well, let me tell you, there was something defective about them. It's the same thing that's defective about all of us. That thankfully God is working through his spirit to change. Because when suddenly it has to turn into action, when you're actually acting on the faith that Mr. DeSimone talked about, when you're actually being a doer of the law, 
like uh, Mr. Dumas said a while ago, suddenly things get a lot more real. We see this with Peter in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. Luke 22 and verse 31. We read, and the Lord said, he's speaking to Peter, he says, uh, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now understand he's encouraging Peter and talking about how he's prayed for his strength, and yet he already knows he's going to slip. God really doesn't know us. God does know that we are dust. And he knew that of Peter. Now, how did Peter respond? Verse 33, it says of Peter, but he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I am ready. I am ready to face the trial. I, I am committed to you. I don't care what the Romans do. And Peter knew. You couldn't live in that time and not see the brutality of the Romans. Or for that matter, even of the Jewish leadership against various sects and different ones and stonings and all the rest. It's not that he wasn't aware of these things. And he says, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. And he says, both to prison and to death. So how does Christ respond? Verse 34. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. He says, you're not just going to slip once. You're going to slip three times in a row. I don't imagine Peter believed it at that time, but we see it. In fact, same chapter. Uh, you look later in the chapter, starting in uh, verse 54. Speaking of Christ, it says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Well, I, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him. And you know he's got to be stewing in it at that point to a certain extent. He said, you also are of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. He's getting panicky. He's getting panicky. Verse 59. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. He's getting emphatic. Other verses suggest he may have started cussing and calling down curses. and saying, I have no idea who this is. Leave me alone. Stop accusing me of being a part of whatever this guy is a part of. And it says, why, immediately, while he was still speaking, the words are coming out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. Oh, and this is, this is why I like Luke's accounting of this, because of this one detail. Verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He was in visual distance. He was in eye shot and ear shot. And the Lord turns and looks at him. Can you imagine being Peter at that moment and locking eyes with the man that you had just told, literally in a sense, moments before, that you would go to the grave by his side. And now you're turning your back on him and you know he's heard it. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly, bitterly. 
fear can take us to places we do things we never thought we would, including going back to spiritual Egypt. How do we counter that? I have no idea. Let's look at the second point. I'm just kidding. Uh, There's things we can do. Uh, The onus is on us, okay? The onus is on us to build a trusting relationship with God. Turn to Daniel chapter 3, if you will. I want to just mention two things. One of them was actually discussed really well in in the sermon. And uh, I'm just going to hit it lightly here. Daniel chapter 3. Oops, it's in the Old Testament, isn't it? Daniel chapter 3. And we have the tale of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there are certain statements of faith and trust in God that jump out at me. I like the word trust. You definitely could say faith. I thought the sermon earlier today covered that really well. It certainly smacked me around a little bit in a good way. Uh, I like sometimes using the word trust for faith because faith can, depending on how long we've spent out in the world, it can be corrupted for us to a certain extent. Do you have faith? Yes, I do. No, I don't. You know, it is that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's got to be, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, something like that. It's hands on heads and people frothing at the mouth, and that's a shame because faith is something so much more beautiful than that. The word trust hasn't been corrupted in a sense by apostate uh, version of Christianity, and in a very real sense, the words are, are very intimately related. Faith, trust is a part of that faith. In Daniel, and chapter three. We see that trust relationship with God that the onus is on us to build. He will do everything he can to build that with us. But we have to do our part. We have to do our part. We don't have to worry about him doing his part. We have to worry about us doing our part. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had that trust relationship. And sometimes I'm afraid we'll turn that into, well, if you have faith, everything you want to happen will happen. And that's not actually trust. You know, your dog may trust you, quote unquote, trust you to fill his bowl with food. It's not trust. He just knows the bowl gets empty, gets filled up again. He shows up and eats it. I'm maybe going to disappoint a lot of dog lovers here, but your dog doesn't actually truly have a deep human kind of trust for you. Okay, am I good? He's an animal. He's an animal. Faith is beyond an animal. Don't get me wrong. They can be impressive for animals. They can be very impressive and can show loyalty and traits that we should admire. But a lot of it is instinct. A lot of it is learned. It's just not the same as human levels of trust. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to exhibit a divine level of trust. The kind of trust that overcomes fear. If you look at what, what was the tale? We have that Nebuchadnezzar had this beautiful giant, well, I don't know if it's beautiful or not, but still a big giant idol uh, set up. And everyone there assembled was to kneel before it when the musicians played. Uh, and they weren't going to. The Bible's pretty plain. You don't worship idols. And even though they have high positions of government, this is a pretty defiant act. So the music plays and they don't bow down. And it's reported to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing like you said, so... He calls for them, and he likes the guys. You can tell when you read it. He really is hoping they would bow down. But he's also not going to be dissed in front of virtually, in a sense, the entire nation. 
uh, he does, he's not going to have that breakdown in terms of his authority being yielded to. So we take a look in Daniel chapter 3, and let's just jump down to verse 16. Well, actually, if you catch just the end of verse 15, I love the last thing he says. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar asked him, he says, if you don't bow down, then look at the last thing he says, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, by the way, what's going to happen for those who don't know the story? If you don't bow down, you don't just get demerits and sent to detention hall or something like that. You're actually thrown alive into a giant furnace and you're burned alive. So that's what they were facing, being burned alive. And what's their response? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Now, I could stop there. And that alone would be an amazing expression of faith that I know we see you and we see your strength and see your power that you can do this. But our God is greater than you, Nebuchadnezzar. He will be the one to deliver us from your hand. But God is looking for a people whose trust goes deeper. Not to diss him, the man out there has a beautiful smile. Uh, but Joel Osteen kind of faith that God just wants nothing but health and wealth and goodness for you is not the actual faith of the Bible. Uh, we were talking actually, uh, 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 me and uh, Mr. Uh, Charles Aguin and Mr. Mike DeSimone, the Bible, Mr. Mike DeSimone, sorry, during the break. And he said, you know, there's the second half of Hebrews 11. There's the first half where all these things go well. The dead are raised and people are healed and evil armies conquered. Then there's the other half of Hebrews 11. Where it's the faithful people who die and are crushed by stones and are sawn in two. They also are honored for their trusting. And it doesn't stop there. They do say, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. You know, you see us every Sabbath. You know to whom we pray that God can save us. But verse 18. But if not, that is, if he doesn't save us. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Their trust was not conditioned on being treated well in this life. Their trust was complete. They trusted God not just to save them, but to choose whether or not to do so and to give him complete sovereignty over that decision. Trust can help us overcome fear. doesn't mean they were afraid. doesn't mean they were sitting back thinking, what if God doesn't save us? Well, dude, we're burning, woo, you know, and just slapping hands and being all excited and everything. We're going to be famous martyrs. Yeah, you know, it doesn't mean they were just insane. They might have been really terrified of going to the flames. I would have been. Let me just confess, I would have been terrified. I don't want to burn to death. But they trusted God and allowed him to make that choice. It's like the child who's terrified of going to the doctor's office because they know there's pointy things in the doctor's office. And sometimes those pointy things are jammed into you. Um, and parts you don't even show strangers, you know. It's a, it's a terrifying place, the doctor's office. The fear doesn't go away, but you handle it 
because you trust mom and dad. I know in our family, the, the splinter digger outer is my wife. I'm in charge of uh, throwing up, and she's in charge of splinters. We have a, a division of labor. And if the child has a splinter, that's one thing I understand is like, this is going to hurt, but trust me, it's necessary. They had that level of trust. And so while the fear was there, they still did the right thing. Uh, the, other, the other ingredient I want to add to that mix before we move to the next point is turn to 1 John chapter 4. If we're concerned about fear taking us back to Egypt, causing us to turn around, the Bible tells us explicitly how to deal with fear. 1 John chapter 4. Sometimes called the apostle of love, John, because he talks so much about it. I was going to say the love apostle, but that sounds like the love boat. It just doesn't sound, doesn't sound right. First John chapter 4. And we'll just read verse 18. We'll go straight there. First John 4 and verse 18. He says, there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. To the extent that we grow in our love for God, fear becomes much more manageable. Because to love Him, we have to know Him. One of the things that I remember Mr. Aguin saying once at a camp out, uh, Bible study, is he said to know God is to trust Him. To the extent we don't trust God, it just means we don't know Him. Because you can't know Him and fail to trust Him. So if we're concerned, we need to examine ourselves. I don't know which of these will land with you most directly. But if we examine ourselves, if fear is one of our concerns, that it might turn us back, we need to focus on learning to trust God and not just simply trust to do what we like, but to trust Him completely to make the right decision regardless of the outcome and need to focus on loving Him and coming to know who He is. So that's one thing that can turn us back. Now let's look at another one. Let's look at a second example uh, scripturally. I'm not going to go straight to it. I, I want to read some setup first. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And we'll just start in verse 2. We're getting some insight into the life of Paul. And if it's the life of Paul, it probably involves being in prison and chains. Uh, it's a, if you're ever kind of uh, just spinning a spinner about Paul's life to see where he might be at any given moment, I don't know, about half of those might be in prison or so. So here he is, anyway, in prison, Colossians chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 2. It says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word. You think, you know, uh, Mr. Meredith uh, asked for prayers for the work a lot. He does it for a reason, because that's what Christian leaders do. Just like the sermonette said, the work is important to us. Even Paul, as you'll find out, he's in prison. And what's on his mind? It's still about doing the work. He says, meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Uh, jump down to verse 7. We see some of those with him. He mentions Tychicus, 
a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. Uh, he's just mentioning various ones. Jump down to verse 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So some of the people that were with Paul at the time, uh, serving him in prison, maybe serving time with him to a certain extent. Uh, let's look at another example in uh, Philemon. Philemon, if you don't know where Philemon is, head to Hebrews and then go backwards just a little bit. I used to have a hard time with Philemon also. In fact, even pronouncing it. For the longest time, I said uh, Philemon. In fact, uh, Leona Dorothy's here when I was in St. Louis, and you might ask her. I might have said that the first few years I was there. I don't know why Philemon just sounded good. Uh, anyway, Philemon would be the right way to say that. Philemon, and jump to verse, let's see, 9. Let's just read verse 9. Uh, jumping in the middle of his sentence, Paul says, Yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's in prison again. Paul was very good at that. Being in prison was his superpower. Uh, he, again, talks about what's going on. It's a very short letter. Uh, jump down to verse 23. Again, speaking of some with him, he says, uh, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. So now we're starting to see Paul's entourage to a certain extent. He's got these guys that were really with him a lot, uh, serving with him, serving him. And imagine what that must have been like. Yes, you spent a lot of time going to prison uh, and serving him in prison. Prison back then was not like, ah, oh, I get three squares a day, I got cable and all the rest. Uh, prison then was horrific. Often, if you didn't have people to take care of you, you just weren't taken care of. So he had these people, he had an entourage with him that were serving with him. He would go and preach in some area and kind of like at TWPs. You've been at a TWP, we'll have the presenter, say one of us, do the overall message. But you're in the crowd too. And afterwards, you're talking to them as well and you're elaborating on things. We have people like Epaphras and Luke and Demas that were doing uh, these kinds of things. Now let's turn to 2 Timothy. Guess where Paul is in 2 Timothy. He's in, he's in jail. Second Timothy, and we're going to turn to chapter 4. We'll start in verse 6. And it's a little more serious, his tone here, if you really read it. Second Timothy chapter 4, we'll start in verse 6. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, he was considering the possibility that he might be executed. You know, there really might not be another opportunity to go somewhere else. Uh, the crowd immediately around him there might be his last audience for the gospel. He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 9, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, he tells Timothy, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. 
What happened to Demas? Here he was a part of the entourage. Here he was being strong, going through difficulties with Paul, uh, but still seeing the blessings, maybe seeing miracles from time to time. And then all of a sudden we have this record and Demas is no longer there. Now, is it possible Demas came back? I have no idea. We'll find out one day in the resurrection. But Demas was gone. What happened? We read the verse again in verse 10. It says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas, in some way, fell prey to distractions and lost his vision. Things distracted him from his vision. Having loved this present world. For a time he loved being with Paul. And he was willing to go to prison after prison and bring Paul food and keep him alive. And yet somehow this was different. We can only speculate. You know, the tone, like I mentioned here in 2 Timothy, is a little more serious. Maybe it never hit him. It might actually end this way. Maybe, you know, sure enough, Paul's in another prison. Oh, you know, it must be Wednesday. You know, Paul's in prison. And maybe he just got used to that. Maybe he got used to seeing miracle after miracle, even in prison. We know that the apostles being in prison and miracles happening is a New Testament thing. Maybe he saw each thing as just being one more kind of feather in the cap of the entourage. We don't really know. Maybe this particular time it was clear things aren't going like the other times. This is bad. This is really bad. Maybe that was what caused him to lose sight of the vision he had before that. I don't know. You had to have some vision to stick around with Paul. You don't go from place to place dodging rocks thrown at your head unless you got some vision that's compelling you to go from place to place. Maybe it is just exactly as he says here, having loved this present world. Maybe there were things in the world that were constantly calling out to him. And while the vision was bright and shining, he didn't hear their siren call all that much. But as the vision dims, that siren call is easier to hear. It's easier to notice the glittering things you'd been leaving behind. Regardless, he lost his vision. Frankly, we see that even in what we read earlier in the book of Numbers uh, compared to Exodus. Man, after coming through the Red Sea, they had a vision of nothing but victory. Here we are on the other side of the Red Sea. Egypt is dead. They're gone. We're literally covered in gold like we're doing a music video. And we are on the way to the promised land. They felt good. Nothing is going to stop us between here and there. We know there's people there and they got armies, but we've got God. There's no way anything can stop us. But then you look through the life they lived and, ah, this water is so bitter. Ah, I'm so hungry. Food, man, what's the deal? Didn't Moses pack any sandwiches or, or something? This is terrible. And after a while, by the time they got there, this beautiful vision of the promised land that was going to be given to them on a silver platter by the God of the universe was gone. Was gone. And all of a sudden, instead of the vision being the real thing, the people of the land were the real thing. For Demas, instead of the vision of doing the gospel, spreading the work of God, and finding more people that God might be calling to take into the kingdom of God forever, suddenly the things of the world were more real. 
we have to have vision. Vision is something that must be maintained. It must be invested in. Uh, one of the examples, actually, Mr. Simone read, I'm going to read it again because it is one of my favorites, in Hebrews chapter 11. When it comes to vision, this is a great example. Hebrews chapter 11. I just like the wording of this, the turn of phrase. Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll just read about Moses and review again what was said earlier today. Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll actually just read a bit of it. We'll start in verse 24. Hebrews 11 and verse 24. We read, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, let's make sure we put this in a context. This is before the burning bush. It's easy to think, well, yeah, sure, he saw this burning bush. It was a miracle. He did the whole hand. Oh, I'm a leper. Oh, oh, no, I'm not. You know, he did the whole thing. Well, yeah, I'd have faith in God, too, with all of that. This is before that. This is when he became of age. This is what prompted eventually what happened. He identified with the people of God that were suffering in slavery instead of the opulent surroundings in which he actually found himself, that he could have stayed in at will. So again, it says in verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. One thing I like about this particular phrase is highlighted to me by a single man way back when I first started uh, attending the church. He was pointing out that don't think somehow you're going to resist sin by pretending it's not pleasurable. It is. A lot of sinful things feel fantastic. They feel great. You always regret them. You always Always, there's not a single sin you will ever commit that in the kingdom and eternity you will say, you know, that one was worth it. That one was so good that I totally don't regret doing that. There's not a single sin in our lives we'll ever commit, we will ever say that. Every single one will bring us to a place one day where we will say, I wish I had never done that. I wish I had never, never given in to that. Because it's a passing pleasure. It's a passing pleasure. And I like that this verse admits that. So Moses was presented with all these passing pleasures of sin, but he had a vision that was more real than those. It says in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. It's easy to say that sometimes we're not surrounded by it. Oh man, I'd give up millions of dollars like that. I don't care. I'm all for God. And then you're surrounded by it and it's real and it's tangible and you have every food you could want. And it's not just about selfish things. Maybe you just want to achieve things. I want to achieve great things. I, I got a health plan I'd like to promote for Egypt, you know, where they don't have to pay individually, uh, you know, and all these other things. You got great plans and schemes. But then there's God's people that are suffering and in the dirt and have the whip on their back and every day is a burden. And he compared the two and identified with the lowly one. Why? It says here that he looked to the reward. Verse 27. 
By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, notice it doesn't say he did see. It doesn't say he endured because he could see God with his own eyeballs. And it was amazing. It doesn't say that. But he endured as if he could see God. As if he could see God. You know, if you were tempted by sin and God were visible right next to you. I don't mean in all of his glory because you'd just be a quivering piece of jello. But still, however much glory that he could show without completely devastating you, along with a vision behind him of all he had to offer, life eternal with the cosmos as your inheritance, that sin wouldn't seem all that great. And yet Moses didn't have that open to his eyes, and yet he endured as if he did. When you watched his actions, when you saw his choices, when you heard his words... There were the actions, choices, and words of someone who might as well have seen the living God with his own eyes. Because that vision of God was that real to him. God was real not just to his eyes, but his bones and his muscles and his mind and his heart. And as a result, the pleasures of this world didn't mean the same thing to him that they would mean to others. We have to maintain vision. If we want to resist the distractions this world has to offer that can turn us back to Egypt. All right, let's look at a third item. A third item. And that is pride and ambition. Pride and ambition. Turn to third John. We all might have our individual poster children of pride and ambition. Uh, this one is mine. Third John. And verse 9. If you have a computer Bible, you might have to type in chapter 1. But the computer lies. There's no chapter 1. There's no chapter division when there's only one chapter. You ever go through English class in high school and you don't use a division if there's only one subunit? Anyway, 3 John, okay, to tell the truth, I actually had the one written in here and I had to scribble it out. And so anyway, uh, 3 John and verse 9, this is the Apostle John writing. Now understand this is who? The Apostle John leaned on the breast of the Messiah was the disciple Jesus loved. There was a special relationship, son of thunder, the Apostle John. The one that outran Peter on the way to the tomb and made sure we knew about it. The Apostle John, right? Legend doesn't cover it when you're talking about one of the original 12 apostles themselves. And here's the letter he writes, verse 9. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. I am sorry, you've got to be filled with some kind of pride and ambition to tell the Apostle John he is not welcome at services. And we know that's what he had because verse 9 says he loves 
the preeminence. I mean, if an apostle shows up to your services, you will no longer be the preeminent person, right? He will officially outshine you. And that's the way it should be, right? That's the way it should be. And Diotrephes wasn't going to have any of that. It's an old pattern. I won't actually turn to it because I, I mentioned it recently in my Ark of the Covenant sermon. We see the same thing in Israel uh, with uh, those who were rebelling against Moses. Saying, well, hey, you know, we're holy as well. Right? Dathan and Abiram and all the rest. You know, we're holy. Who do you think you are, Moses? They didn't like the idea that Moses was above them. And God solved that by having the planet eat those people. Uh, God knew who was preeminent in his sight. And it wasn't them. It wasn't them. You know, one point that I do want to make is we're talking about turning back to Egypt. And yet here I'm using Diotrephes as an example of someone apparently still in the church, at least attending, right? Attending. Is it possible that we here, me here, you there, can be turning in our hearts and still physically be present. I would say Diotrephes, if he was still in any way a part of the body of Christ, it would be wonderful to think that he repented one day after this. I don't know. But I can tell you, if he wasn't turned 180 degrees all the way around, he had started his journey. Pride does that. Ambition does that. You know, uh, Dr. Meredith, when I started with the telecast, uh, took me out for lunch at the, uh, it's the place that's now Mi Pueblos. I think it used to be an Italian place. I think that's, that sound familiar? Anybody? Something like that? No, okay. Doesn't make a difference. Um, anyway, we were there and he wanted to make sure I was aware of something. I was aware of something when Dr. Meredith first called me to ask me on the telecast. I, I had actually just started, uh, my own pastorate. I hadn't been there for very long, and the first thing after I hung up with Dr. Meredith was I called Mr. Rand Millich. Uh, he was not only my regional pastor, but he had trained me. And I, in order to feel comfortable with the decision, I wanted to know from Mr. Millich that he had had some kind of input um, because I know what things like that can do to a person. One day you're on television and you get the big head. Next thing you're not on television... But you take the big head with you, right? Uh, it's a parting gift. And, <laughs> and Mr. Millich was my pastor. And I wanted to know that he was comfortable with something like this. That he, having worked with me for a whole year, seeing me in the field, seeing me at hopefully my best sometimes, but also my worst, that he was comfortable that I would be doing something like this. Because otherwise, I was going to express more more reservation. And he said he was. Oh, yeah, no, I'm good. I don't know if he was snickering you know, off the phone. But no, no, he said, you know, I, you know, I'm really good with that. But that was a legitimate concern. And on the first, uh, uh, after I'd been added to the telecast, Mr. Meredith, getting back to the original story, had taken me out to lunch. And he talked to me. And he wanted to make sure also that I keep that in mind, that pride has taken many, 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 men out of the church and ambition has taken many out 
Uh, people that who were useful, that were achieving things in the work, who were amazing tools in the hand of God while they were there. And Dr. Mary wanted to highlight to me that the road from the 60s to now for the church, if you look along the side, is littered with the spiritual graves of men who let pride and ambition take them over and stop seeing that they were there to do God's business and not their own. Uh, turning their departments in Pasadena uh, to many kingdoms for their own glory. He pointed that, you know, sometimes it, it wasn't even a demotion that would set them off. It might be a parallel move, maybe to something that was just as important for the work, but maybe not as visible. And he was doing his best as a father in the faith for someone who was about to be very visible in the church, regardless of his looks. Uh, and he wanted me to know, and I thank God, that Dr. Meredith keeps those things in mind because he's seen too many of his own students, his own spiritual children in that way, fall victim to that sort of thing. Pride and ambition has taken a lot of men out of the church in the prime of their usefulness. And it's taken a lot of members out as well. Why? Well, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. What does pride connect us to? 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul is discussing with Timothy what to consider before ordaining someone. And I had this passage in mind when I called Mr. Millich uh, that day in that September uh, what seems like 147 years ago. Uh, in 1 Timothy in chapter 3. Uh, I'll just break into the middle of a thought because Paul is doing one of his trademark run-on sentences. Uh, he would not get through editorial with that kind of stuff, uh, you know, here, uh, for our publications. Uh, naughty Paul. Anyway, getting down to where he says in verse 6, saying that this person should not be a novice, verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The devil was puffed up with pride. You can read his story in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And what you see is a being who could have been the most amazingly productive being for God's work amongst the, angel, uh, the angels in the entire angelic realm. Powerful and beautiful and wise. But pride turned him the opposite direction. Now let's contrast that with another example. If you turn to John chapter 3, how do we conquer that? It's kind of obvious how to conquer something is you focus on the opposite. In John chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, by all accounts, a remarkable person. No less than the Messiah himself, the Son of God on earth, called him the greatest among men. Truly an amazing individual. Josephus, if you haven't actually read the passage, it, to me, things like that embolden my faith. But Josephus writes of John the Baptist. And unlike the passage about Jesus that no one likes, and they try to argue Josephus didn't really write that, though the evidence is that he did, regardless of what some may have done with it. Jesus was alive, and Josephus wrote about him. But John the Baptist in that passage isn't nearly contested as much. 
It doesn't even have the feel of later alteration that some passages do. It, they, people point out that if Christians tried to insert this into Josephus, they did a bad job. Because normally you would do it in some kind of way that would really uh, promote your own faith. This seems to be a very legitimate writing of Josephus about John the Baptist. And John and Josephus in Jesus is really a contemporary, virtually, of Jesus and John the Baptist around there. He writes of John the Baptist that Herod was so nervous about John the Baptist because his fame was so widespread and he was so well respected amongst the people of Judea that he that Herod feared that all the people would be ready to do anything John the Baptist should advise. He was afraid that if John the Baptist called for it, there would be a revolt because he was so well respected and so well regarded. If anyone had a pump primed for pride and ambition, it was John the Baptist. And then we read in John in chapter 3, starting in verse 22, this is after Jesus' own baptism. It says, verse 22 of John 3, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus baptized as well at the same time as John the Baptist. He himself did not do the baptizing, as it says in John 4. He had commanded his disciples to do that. Very much a picture of what happens even today in the church. We baptize on Jesus' behalf. But yet he had a ministry that involved baptizing as well. And in verse 23 it says, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Now John's disciples see this, and they get uh, kind of jealous on John's behalf. And it says in verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. You were here first. You were here first and you baptized him. And now it's like he's robbing all of your followers and all of your disciples. And his entire response is worth reading. But let me just jump to verse 30. John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. I don't know, for years, that's just been one of the most moving statements in the Bible to me. It's foreign to this world. It is alien to this life. Is there a single presidential candidate that you see today you could ever imagine saying, I must decrease and he must increase? I can't fathom a one. And if I look in my own human heart, the part that God is helping me address more and more day by day like He is for you too, that is not a human statement. No one wants to decrease. Not really. Even those of us who like to slink back into the shadows, it's almost like our own form of increase. We're slinking back to what's comfortable. It's an amazing statement. For us to think that somehow we're so humble or we're just kind of a nothing, pride and ambition could never take me out of the church. It's a mistake. It's taken many out. How do we address it? Asking God for John the Baptist's level of humility. Asking God to teach us humility by whatever means he needs to in love. Because the only thing you can beat back pride with is a humble and submitted spirit. So the last thing I want to discuss in the sermon that could take us back to Egypt, you'll find your own things to be sure. I'd like to start with an example. I'd like to use an example to highlight it. Turn to 2 Samuel 16. And we'll see Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 16. 
There's a bit of a mystery of history here. I feel like I know what's going on. Um, there's other theories out there. I don't agree with any of them because they're not mine. And I must increase and those people must decrease. So, anyway, Second uh, Samuel and chapter 16. Second Samuel 16 and let's read verse 23. It says of this certain counselor of David, Ahithophel, it says, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel with both David and with Absalom. That is an amazing compliment if you're an advisor, if you're a counselor. Saying, asking this fellow for his advice was as good as asking God himself, because he was always right. That's an amazing statement. And he was David's trusted advisor. But if you notice, it says there, so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Absalom being the son that turned against David. And in a coup d'etat, tried to overtake the throne. And did for a time. Overtake that and take it away from David. What's up with that? Uh, turn a chapter earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 12. Read, then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So Ahithophel just goes with Absalom. Goes with the traitor who is plotting to take over after David and take the throne away. Uh, Read in verse 30. It says, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. He's having to flee from his own capital and his own home. Uh, And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. You know, it's really fascinating when you look at the details. How did they get to the Mount of Olives? It says in verse 23, they crossed the brook Kidron. It's interesting. Ahithophel, uh, this is a side note, but I can't help but at least mention it. Ahithophel betrays David. And as David leaves, he crosses over the brook Kidron and goes up to the Mount of Olives. When Judas betrayed Jesus, what does it say they did after Passover? They crossed over the brook Kidron. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is there at the Mount of Olives. It's a fascinating parallel. There's actually a psalm. It's a, I'll just give you the verse. It's Psalm 41 and verse 9, where David speaks of a familiar friend who was trusted, who ate my bread but lifted up his heel against me. A lot of commentators believe David was writing about Ahithophel. Jesus Christ quotes that verse about Judas. Really interesting parallels between David and Jesus there. Anyway, things don't go well for Ahithophel. Uh, I won't go into it in detail and read all the verses, but frankly, he comes to the exact same end as Judas. Uh, Ahithophel gives Absalom some counsel, and he personally asks, oh, I have to read that part, it's in chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, uh, moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. That sounds personal, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds 
personal. And then he says, I'll bring back all the people to you. Well, Absalom listens to the advice and then David had a plant there and then David, I mean, Absalom gets his advice as well and Absalom decides to go with the other advice and ignore Ahithophel's. The thing is, Ahithophel had a working plan. And Ahithophel was wise enough to realize when Absalom didn't take that advice but he went with the other advice, that was enough for Ahithophel to know God is against me in this. And the gig is up. And he goes out and hangs himself. Just like Judas did. What could have done this? Why would he have turned like this? Speculation. Speculation. We all agree with speculation. I need a speculation warning light. Woo, 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 speculation. But turn to Second Samuel 11. Ahithophel was one of David's faithful men. He had other faithful men as well. We talk about David's mighty men. Second Samuel chapter 11. And I can't say this speculation is original with me. I want to take credit for that. Second Samuel 11 and verse 3. Speaking of the matter of Bathsheba earlier, it says, So David sent as after he saw Bathsheba and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Well, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Well, let's read of some of David's other mighty men like Eliam and Uriah. Turn to 2 Samuel 23. And we'll read of Uriah and see that he is listed among the mighty men. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And verse 39, right, the very last verse of that chapter, we'll see that Uriah is amongst David's faithful mighty men, whom David had murdered, if you recall, in the tale with his adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, verse 39, 2 Samuel 23, it says, And Uriah the Hittite, 37 and all. So Uriah was among the mighty men. In fact, Eliam is among the mighty men as well. Turn a little earlier to verse 34. Verse 34, uh, Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbi, uh, my eyesight, Ahazbi, the son of Machathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. I don't know for sure. I admit I don't know. The moment I heard the theory, I fell in love with it and it could be an idea baby. I'm not married to it. But all I know is if someone had done to my granddaughter and her husband, my son's daughter, what David had done, my friend whom I counseled and sacrificed for, at the very least, I would be hurt. At the worst, I might be resentful and I might be bitter. The last thing I want to mention as we close out today is bitterness, hurt, and resentment will turn you back to Egypt if you are not careful. Bitterness, hurt, and resentment. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, the Apostle Paul gives a strong warning about bitterness. Hebrews chapter 12. 
And I can only imagine he did so because he had seen its effects so often in his own life, in his own time, in his years in serving the church and its people. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 15. Actually, we'll go ahead and start in verse 14 for context. Paul says in verse 14 of Hebrews 12, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Bitterness, hurt, and resentment have defiled more people in the church of God than you can count. Or that I can count. And it's something we must constantly be on guard about. It doesn't have to be bitterness or hurt concerning a minister. It can be your brother or sister right next to you. It can be your spouse. Bitterness has taken many people out of the church. Actually, in 2006, in the Living Church News Personal, January, February 2006, Dr. Meredith wrote this about bitterness. He said, one of the most dangerous attitudes we can ever get into is that of bitterness. As Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong often said, bitterness is like heroin. If you allow yourself to be filled with bitterness, it will kill you spiritually. He says later, indeed, a root of bitterness will cause you to turn away from God and his church. It will cause you to lose friends and family. It can lead you to become a truly profane person, willing to give up your entire eternal award for some cheap worldly benefit, as did Esau, who sold one morsel, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Bitterness has been an amazingly effective tool in the hands of the devil to take people's eyes off of their destiny and their future and their purpose and their place in the people of God and cause them to start longing for what is truly behind them and should stay behind them. How do we counter that? Jesus Christ did. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last passage we'll read today. Though as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, you might note Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 32. There the Apostle Paul talks about being bitter and being angry and how what that does is give place to the devil. Bitterness, in a sense, isn't something you add to you. It's like a hole you cave out of yourself. And that hole is a grab hold for the devil. It's a place for him to get his hand inside of you and do with you what he will. Jesus Christ, if anyone could have been bitter, if anyone had the potential, no, potential is the wrong word, if anyone had the option, justifiably, of being bitter, Jesus Christ. All the people he lovingly made on this earth got together while he was here and decided to have him tortured and murdered. Before his incarnation, there were people here whose prayers he heard whose lives he likely intervened in. And now they're in a crowd chanting for his death. What did he do? It's a difficult thing to wrestle with. I'm not pretending otherwise. But I do see a key in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 and start in verse 20. 
It says, for what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You know, it's like you did something wrong and you got a beaten from your boss or whatever and you took it patiently. Well, good. You deserved it. So, OK, you know, we're, we're good. Uh, but he says, when you do good and suffer, when you do the right thing and suffer, there's a lot of potential for bitterness then. God, I'm doing the right thing. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? I'm doing everything you asked me to do. And why is he acting like this? And why is she acting like this? It says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You likely read this come Passover time. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. He did not act out of bitterness. Not a moment. Not a word escaped his mouth that was motivated by bitterness and resentment and hurt. So when he was reviled, did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. I know for me, if I ever feel the temptation or pull towards bitterness, this verse calls out to me. Realizing that Jesus Christ went through so much worse than any of us ever do. There's a reason that I believe that Ahithophel and David's story parallels Jesus Christ and Judas's. And yet he dealt with the hurt and recognized he has one judge in this world that he should care about. And the rest, let it be what it's going to be. God will take care of it. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. We have to be on guard against this. We have to be on guard against all of these things. Fear. Lack of vision. Hurt and resentment and bitterness, and pride and ambition. We have to be on the lookout. Egypt is constantly calling us. Constantly. There will not be a day that goes by in your life when there won't be a whisper from Pharaoh and his land saying, just come back. We've got all the leeks and garlic you could ever want. But if we're on guard against these things, then one day we'll not only find ourselves on the other side of the Red Sea, We'll find ourselves on the other side of the Jordan. 